day one of partnering with that investor is going to be just reintroduction of so much operational risk. And so like you've built this nice structure and, and it has a great foundation. And then all of a sudden you're like, all right, we're going to try to build an absolute high rise on top of this structure. And by virtue of doing that, you're really kind of jeopardizing, kind of re-exposing the foundation you built to risk, to dramatic risk. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Matt Melimuka. Matt's the co-founder and partner at Peakspan Capital. Now, Matt's an experienced venture investor in SaaS companies, and he believes that the growth-at-all-costs, unicorn-or-bust venture model is totally crazy for most companies. And I have to admit, I couldn't agree more, which is one of the reasons I was so interested in having Matt on the show. Now, as Matt points out in our conversation, that in the last 10 years, with eight of those in a very bullish market, the odds that a business will have a $500 million exit, even if it hits $100 million exit value, is about 3%. As he points out, the chances of a company will, <laughs> that a company will grow a horn and be wreathed in rainbows are about three-tenths of a percent. So here's the focal point of our conversation today. If the success rate of the sales model is so low, why are investors so wedded to this playbook that has such a low probability of success? Well, we're going to get into all of that and much, much more. But before we get to Matt, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate you having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Our pleasure. So uh, tell us a bit about Peak span capital. I mean, you're sort of a position yourself as a different type of venture capitalist. Yeah, yeah, and, and venture capitalist. Um, you know, I, I think it's that's an easy way to describe the, the stage of investing that we that we play in. But sometimes, maybe increasingly, has a at least a, a, a an emotive, provoking <laughs> or, or <laughs> emotion uh, initial initial you know, reaction people have is like connotation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, vulture exactly. capital. So, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, one, one I agree with, to be honest, quite, quite candidly to a, a lot of. So um, we position ourselves as what we call um, an emerging growth stage uh, investment firm. And so um, I think classically you have kind of on the two ends of the spectrum, early stage venture and then, you know, buyout private equity in the middle is, is kind of the nice blend of the two in growth equity, which, you know, in, in its initial kind of pure form, Back in the 90s, um, launched by by Summit Partners and TA, um, it was really trying to blend, you know, the best of both worlds, which is a more mature business, uh, a, a business that's run pretty efficiently, not ingesting gobs of capital to get to the the stage and scale, you know, at which uh, at which the, the companies are when these these investors look to partner with them. Mm -hmm. You know, back in back when the model was launched uh, and and really launched and kind of enabled by you know, the, the proverbial engine room um, where you have these, you know, young, uh, overeducated, highly articulate folks from Ivy League schools calling companies, trying to, to get them to take your money. Um, it, it was probably pretty interesting, I think, to get a call from an investment firm as an entrepreneur back then. You, you probably didn't know much about venture capital or private equity. Uh, you weren't getting a ton of calls or emails, you know, back then mm -hmm. from, from investors. And so I think over time, that model has just become incredibly saturated and uh, and even um, you know permeated the venture industry such that most firms really today go to market 
really with the equivalent, if you think about it, of, of an SDR. Um, and they're, they're kind of calling the, you know, the CEO or the enterprise uh, leader, decision maker of, of a business, right? If you're kind of using the, the sales, um, the strategic sales team analogy. And that's just a weird way to do it from our perspective. And so uh, we can come back to that and get into more detail there. We actually only have, you know, senior people, partners um, and principals reaching out to companies and, and it's partners and principals with a real perspective on your company. Um, we write really long, probably too long, very verbose emails about why we love a business, why we want to you know, get in front of you. Mm-hmm. And we really try to just be helpful and, and have a, a different conversation and different level of rapport um, from that first call and, and every call thereafter. Um, and so in terms of where we play, just to get back to the emerging growth stage comment, um, we're looking for companies that are really uh, have stripped away some of the binary risk levers associated with classic early stage venture. So You've got a real product and, and you've got real revenue and customers. Um, you know, interestingly, today, I would say uh, for a three or four million dollar SaaS business, just by virtue of the fact that there's so much data and so many tools being leveraged to to capture that data and understand it, I probably have more insight into how a company's engine is working at a three million dollar scale today than I did maybe at 10 million 10 years ago, if oh, that sure. makes sense. Because yeah, 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 absolutely. Just, you can get confidence and, and comfort so much earlier. So we're looking for companies right in that range, call it three to three to ten million of ARR, growing nicely, uh, capital efficient, um, playing in, in strategic sectors of B2B software. All we do is B2B software um, and doing things that are interesting and, and we think have real potential and value, uh, but not necessarily frothy and, and on the cover of, of TechCrunch. <laughs> uh, and, and you haven't ingested, you know, gobs of venture capital to get right. where you are, and so uh, that's really the the profile that we look for. Well, and, and you you write about it in, on the, your blog, and you guys have a good blog. Is that you know you guys believe that the growth at all costs or the unicorn or bust venture models totally crazy for most companies. Yet this is the model that I think so many entrepreneurs have in mind when they look for for capital. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I was I was pausing to see if uh, if you were going to share your your perspective on it. I'd be well, curious to yeah, get. Yeah, you know, I, think get, it, you I think it's crazy. <laughs> I do think it's crazy. I think that. Yeah, I think that. You know that, and this is not this is not a new phenomenon, right? This has gone on for you know absolutely for decades. Is you know there are companies that are and entrepreneurs that are trying to build sustainable companies. And there are uh, entrepreneurs that are trying to basically running a promotion, <laughs> and and the promotion is yeah, how can we pump this thing full of of uh, enough yeah whatever at this point hot air or whatever in order to you know achieve a certain status, attract certain funding, and exit as quickly as we can. And yeah, and that's yeah. that's sort of been my experience over decades working in startups and and raising money myself and so on is that. Yeah, either, and I've been fortunate to work for a lot of entrepreneurs that took money that wanted to build companies and they wanted to run companies for a long time. Um, and sure, they wanted to exit at some point, get liquid at some point. But uh, yeah, also experienced the other side where people just sort of, I don't want to say pump and dump, but was sort of close to that. And I think we have a lot of that going on these days. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think um, I totally agree with all of that. And I think there's it's hard to generalize because there's there's different reasons people start businesses and become entrepreneurs. There's different reasons why folks want to be investors and, and work with companies. I think um, some of the craziness from my perspective 
Uh, and what you just described, by the way, if it is, you know, two or, or several adults getting into a, a, you know, an engagement relationship where everyone is aware and totally, you know, upfront and transparent about what that relationship and, and kind of engagement model is, that's totally fine, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's, you know, we're going to grow and, and invest as much as we can, uh, or we're going to try to get, you know, back to profitability and, and build a sustainable business on just this round of capital, as long as you're talking about what the objectives are and aligning, you know, your goals with, with your ambitions, that's totally fine. Um, sure. I think one of the one of the interesting things to me and, and part of the reason that I believe this model um, has become so prevalent and, and really so pervasive. And, and I think, you know, to some degree, entrepreneurs have, have almost been kind of conditioned to think that it's the only way to do it because it's, it's really the only model they see or the only model that's talked about. In the, in the media and in some of these realms like, you know, Saster and, and uh, some of the blogosphere. Right. I think it's largely because um, not because it's the best way to do it. Right. Not because it's the proven best way um, or the highest probability way or, or just the most kind of natural sane way to do it. It's really, in my view, been pushed a lot by the, the rise of increasing amounts of capital. So just so much capital, you know, not enough great opportunities which creates a weird dynamic and, and really the rise of these massive, massive billion dollar plus early stage funds that really need to pursue that model. Right. So if you have like billion, two billion dollars of early stage capital, it's really hard for you just from a time management perspective to you know, spend enough time with every company. Uh, and, and you kind of have to pursue this portfolio theory approach of, of pushing every company to really, you know, be the next, um, you know, the, like it's like the Russian cosmonauts, right? Let's yeah. fire them all at the moon and, and hope, you know, one of them <laughs> one doesn't burn up right. in the atmosphere. <laughs> um, and, and so the perverse thing from my perspective is that that's fine. Again, if you're talking about, you know, what that means, it, it's uh, it's just a little weird that, you know, the model I, I really believe is is really, you know, where it is today and as prevalent as it is today because uh, that is what the venture investor needs versus what the company needs. And so, well, yeah. I mean, a huge, huge disconnect there, I think. And, and, and you know, my concern is, as I you know, look at from a sales perspective and a go-to-market perspective, is that you know, what's considered best practices, by and large, aren't really geared toward creating sustainable enterprises. Um, because you, know, you look at, yeah, it's not uncommon in SaaS businesses that you know, <laughs> win rates on your most qualified opportunities run about 20%, which means that your go-to-market strategy is predicated on the fact that your value proposition is so weak that you can only win one of every five opportunities that are your most highly qualified opportunities. But that's okay because yeah, your go-to-market strategy is predicated on filling the top of the funnel. Uh, with enough opportunities that you can sort of sustain yourself for a while on that that uh, low win rate, but at some point you have to learn how to sell and grow a business that's yeah again can be sustained. Well, and, and that's a really interesting point too, uh, Andy, and I think it's a great kind of corollary to to what we're talking about on the investing side because um, you know I think similarly the uh, you know in, in venture there's what's called a capital loss ratio, which is effectively for every dollar you invest, how much goes to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, the average in venture is 35.4%. <laughs> so right. three and a half out of every 10 companies you're investing in go to zero. The, some of the, the quote unquote tier one firms that are really kind of pushing this, you know, this growth at all cost methodology, some of those firms have 50, 60% capital loss. And so 
Um, if, if I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, I have most of my tangible net worth and adult life invested in building this one company, I, I'm not a portfolio manager. And so a binary outcome is not palatable to me. <laughs> and, and again, if I know that and I'm comfortable with that, that's that's one thing. But, you know, if you're a, an early stage two million dollar ARR business and, and you are kind of high fiving because you've raised 50 million bucks at a huge price, like that's fine, but just know what that means because you've kind of backed yourself into a corner where you have to, to your point, Andy, grow really unnaturally, and, and you kind of have to overextend yourself in the hopes of of not being that that zero, but but being one of those ones in that capital loss equation. And so it's just a it's just an interesting kind of approach and, and model, and, and not one that I think needs to be pursued as much as it really is. Um, you know, I think the the um, the interesting part about that too is. Uh, what that really breeds from a, from an investor and kind of asset level perspective is just uh, kind of a, a massive commoditization of, of what capital really is and means. So, right. you know, if, if that's what you're doing and kind of inherently and definitionally, you're not really, really, really doing much to, to you know, engage and, and work with the company and collaborate. Um, and you're instead just kind of, you know, pushing the same model and giving them a bunch of cash if I'm the entrepreneur, I'm kind of inherently going with the highest price and, and the most money, right? Um, because alignment's not not really part of the equation because we don't have any. Uh, and so that's a weird way to do it. And, it. and it just kind of, I think most investors have accepted the fact that their quote unquote product quality doesn't matter. And so we try to really reframe the conversation and really work hard to demonstrate the quality of our product um, and, and the value that we can provide uh, and it's not a great fit for every entrepreneur, to be honest, right? If you're a kind of a hired gun CEO and you have 3% of the company and, and you, you live in the Valley, you, you kind of probably want to go for a big outcome too. But if you're an owner operator and it's your first time doing it and you own 50% of the business, um, you're really looking for a partner who's going to help and, and, you know, fight like hell for you. Um, and so our, our capital loss ratio, which I think really kind of elucidates that, the best um, across 50 companies. My partners and I have worked together on um, 25 at our prior firm, uh, about actually 29 now at Peakspan. We've only lost money one time. So our capital loss ratio, I think, is like 2.7%. Mm. Uh, and that doesn't mean we're the best uh, or luckiest investors in the world. It just means that when things go sideways, we're, we're not running for the doors. And, and really right. importantly, initially, we're really all aligning transparently about what are we building towards? How do we get there? And what's reasonable to, to kind of help us get there, you know, versus, all right, we're closed. Let's raise, you know, let's hire 50 reps tomorrow, right. uh, regardless of what the infrastructure is to support it. Right. Well, first of all, you win an award for being the first guest on the show to use the word elucidate. So uh, there we go. That's a milestone <laughs> over, I think, over close to a thousand episodes now. Um, <laughs> As the son of a, 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 a copy editor, mother, and, and lifelong writer, she will be very, very pleased to hear that. <laughs> That's right. And uh, and we'll put the definition in the show notes page if people need help with that. Um, but let's let's talk about what you guys do differently, and because I. One of the reasons I was really interested in talking with you because, you know, as I was researching you, this really caught my attention is because I'm, as people know, that follow the show and my writing and so on is, yeah, the, the growth at all costs uh, model, I think, is not so. Uh, and it's creating all sorts of behaviors that, that uh, you know, people think are good behaviors that actually are bad behaviors in, in so many ways, um, at least on the sales side. So, so. Tell us what you guys do differently. You know, you talk about being more collaborative. Uh, you're not running for the exits, and I believe me, I've 
experienced <laughs> investors running for the exits. Um, you know, as one firm, we raised a bunch of money in, right before the bust in 2008. And uh, yeah, you know, that's, as you may recall, you know, it's, if you raise money, unfortunately, right before 2008, before the, the market collapse, you know, you're sort of labeled as mm, damaged goods. A great way to get to know your investor partner, right? The um, <laughs> yeah. I, I partnered with a hospitality tech business uh, in February of, of last year, um, and the CEO called me freaking out, you know, when COVID came down. And uh, and it, again, it was a great way to to really test the relationship. I, I you know immediately said like, relax, we're we're a private company, and and we're we're going to figure this out together. Um, but you know, times are it's never easy building a, a company, and things always go sideways or south. To answer your question, Andy, in terms of what we do differently, um, it, it really starts uh, and kind of is all founded on on our premise of just focus and specialization, uh, breeding to breeding success and, and leading to just um, really being able to help uh, and almost have a, an entrepreneur to entrepreneur level of rapport because we're living in the categories that our teams are. So first and foremost, focus and specialization. So we only do B two B software. I, I lead three themes and three themes only for our, for our firm, and that's that's marketing tech, sales tech, and hospitality tech. Um, so sales tech, you know, this this conversation, I spend probably fifty percent of my time reading the same stuff and thinking about the same stuff that you guys do and the entrepreneurs I work with do. So you can just have a really informed level of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's point one. You know, being generalist and and going from like a clean tech board meeting to an e scooter board meeting to a to a crypto session. I'm not smart enough to do that, and so it's just it strikes me as odd that that, that is often the case, um, right. and, and what you can bring to bear if you do that. So that's that's part of it, um, and I think you know the from there we work really really hard to um, to to really uh, drive impact and help and support our companies with tangible action and actual you know honest to goodness work, whatever that might mean. And I'll give some examples. Uh, because we only have senior folks reaching out to companies, the junior folks at our firm spend all of their time helping our companies. So they're not cold calling companies all day. Their job is instead to be almost like a McKinsey level kind of you know strategic financial consulting bench focused on sales tech that thinks about, all right, what can we do to help this business today? Um, and we do those things uh, before we partner because most entrepreneurs, when they hear that, are like, you know, yawn, quote unquote, value add, of course, I've right. heard this before. What, what does that mean? Right. Um, right. And so so what, what we what we look to do is really, um, you know, kind of demonstrate that. So um, we, we do it a bunch of different ways. So it might be, you know, as simple as, as you know, thought partnership or, or introductions. That's so table stakes. I think that's what a lot of firms kind of claim they're, they're best at. But it's, it's so table stakes. Well, it's things like and also not, they're usually yeah. not as forthcoming with them as they they lead you the entrepreneur to believe I, I can, for sure. I can, for vouch, sure. I can vouch for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of our job and, and part of the challenge is literally we're overcoming the, the connotation of um, every investor's value add, but nobody does anything. And so we're, st- we're starting from a place of skepticism. And so that's why we do a lot of work for companies before we're even partnered to, to kind of prove it. Um, so it can be really anything under the sun. We, we, uh, we've been building technology ourselves for about 12 years at Peakspan um, that helps us really you know, provide value to our companies, uh, get smarter about industry categories. Uh, for example, one of the things we just built that we, you know, we, we look to do and, and um, you know, help companies with every quarter, we refresh them. Um, 
websites like G2 Crowd and you know Trust Radius sure. and Captera, just awesome sources of information. I think if you're you know um, trying to ingest personally every review, and I'm sure as as a CEO, most of them read and get an alert and read like every review that comes in. A, you're inherently biased, right? So you could read a hundred reviews, and then Andy, you could as well, and and I could as well, and we could all have like three different takeaways. Mm-hmm. Um, you're inherently biased. It's impossible to ingest all that information. So we've built technology that actually uh, leverages NLP to extract key themes from every review, uh, measure those key themes uh, relative to your competitors, so you can really kind of granularly look at here's the sentiment that, that our customers have, positive or negative, and you can drill down into to specific you know, examples of it. Here's the themes that we are really strong on, you know, product quality, customer service, here's where we're kind of weak. Uh, so that's one example of one. Uh, you know, any financial analysis, financial modeling, you know, I think those are often skills that companies we work with don't have or, or are not great at, and, and they have no reason to be, and so we can be helpful there. Uh, thinking through things like how to scale a sales team, right, and how to how to you know structure and organize uh, the sales team and, and the hierarchy and and put in place the you know the resources and the infrastructure and enablement tools to scale that team. Um, it's really you know the benefit of our experience is is the best thing we can offer, and so trying to package and and almost productize that experience into tangible um, you know workshops or analyses. Um, or support tools is, is really what we look to do. So we fight like hell. Um, you know, I, I would be I would be very upset if um, if any entrepreneur that that anyone at Peaks fans ever worked with said anything but you know they're the hardest working guys around the table because <laughs> it's just a hard work right. model. <laughs> we well, um, you know we t- we yeah. Well, I wanted to, I want to talk about an article that you guys had on your uh, your series of articles you had on your blog about uh, your Peakspan growth fables. And you talk about fortress building. I thought that was an interesting concept. I mean, first of all, love the fact you guys uh, referenced David McCauley's book, Castle, which, as my kids were growing up, that was uh, one of my our go tos. Um, awesome. Nice. So, so where's this idea of fortress building come from? Um, I mean, yeah, I know it, it yeah. goes back to sort of what we talked about before is, you know, a fortress, implicit in that use of the word, is that something that's built to last um, as opposed to. Uh, you know the example we gave before, sort of pump and dump. Oh, totally. Well, thank you for for looking at those. Yeah, the um, what what Andy's referencing um, is we we have this you know the series of of we call them our growth parables. Um, you see so many of the same things with with every every company, right? Really across categories, but you know working with fifty plus companies, every company's journey is unique, of course. But you see so many of the same like speed bumps and road signs. And so the growth parable kind of idea was let's, you know, A, use analogies or, you know, reference literary works to, to make them kind of approachable and just talk about, you know, things we've seen or, or parts mm-hmm. of our philosophy that are really relevant. The fortress building mantra is all about um, it's what's most kind of crazy and wild to me is a lot of times when you see, you know, this company that scaled to whatever, five or six million of ARR really on the back of their, you know, sweat, blood, sweat and tears. And they haven't raised much money to get there. And then they raise this monster round from a crazy growth investor and they're pumped about it. Um, You know, the the day one of partnering with that that investor is going to be just reintroduction of so much operational risk. And so, like, you've built this nice um, this nice structure and, and it has a great foundation and then all of a sudden you're like, all right, we're going to try to build, you know, a, an absolute high rise um, on top of this structure. 
Um, and by virtue of doing that, you're really kind of jeopardizing and, and kind of re-exposing the foundation you built exactly. to, to risk, to dramatic yes. risk, right? Yeah. And See so, it all so the part time. of our model is, yeah. And part of our model is almost like the hip, it's like, do no harm, right? First, first thing, do, do no harm and, uh, and really preserve the, the, you know, preserve and buttress and bulwark, uh, the foundation and build out the city walls from there and never reintroduce operational risk if you don't have to. And, and sometimes you do have to, but. But in terms of, you know, hiring too quickly or, or spending too quickly when you don't have the data, you know, to assert that it's the right thing to do, it's just unnecessary um, as long as everyone's aligned uh, and pragmatic about w- what are we building to uh, and how do we get there? That, that's just a, a critical part of it is, is just aligning around, you know, what, what the expectations are and making sure they're reasonable. Yeah, well, I think one of the things I, that caught my, my eye in, in going through the growth fables, though, that I really like because I... Uh, the most successful startups I've worked with and entrepreneurs I've worked for uh, were basically bootstrapped. And and you talk about in this article about you know, basically, uh, yeah, if you're building a fortress, fortress setting teams, you know, uh, treat capital as a scarce asset. So they're basically operating under a theory of constraints, and which I think is is so valuable for for a startup organization. Is because it requires greater creativity and ingenuity about how we're going to solve this problem, right? The problem of growth. How are we going to solve it? How are we going to approach it? How are we going to approach our customers? How are we going to deal with our customers if we don't have unlimited resources? Well, and you know what the the beauty of that is too, Andy, is if that's your approach, you know, a it's just operationally more efficient in general, right? Because you have that DNA of just incredible capital efficiency, valuing dollars. To your point. The other real big benefit is, you know, because you haven't raised a ton of money, you probably own a lot of your business as a senior team. And thus, inherently, what you need to see in terms of absolute exit value and price to get, you know, as much or more money um, if you had raised a bunch is way less, right? Because you're not diluted down. And so if you if you do that, there's so much value because you can pursue an exit. And, and by the way, we, we look at, at this data because we're data geeks. Um, uh, year in and year out, 80% of, of exits, if you breach 100 million of exit value in, as a software company, so that's you know success in and of itself, 80% of the time you're selling between 100 and 350. Uh, and so one of our core principles is everyone we, we work with, we should all be high-fiving if we're selling in that zone, right? And so if we, if we get to that zone and, and we call ourselves peak span because that can be the, the first proverbial peak, and then right. we can chart to other peaks, right, with more data and, and more conviction. But that first peak, we should align on what it is, and it should be reasonable. And, and if you haven't raised a ton to get there, you can sell for $150 million bucks and have a generational wealth event. And right. That's awesome. <laughs> that's great. It's great for everyone. Yeah, and it may not be you know, hundreds of millions uh, for the individuals, but as you said, it's generational wealth because they own the, the bulk of the company. We, we ran the math. Um, I think every one of our, our CEOs uh, at an at a, um, exit value of $250 million will make more uh, than the, the, the founder CEO of Box made when the company went public. Right. And, and that's just like, that's a horrible, that, that's sad because, you know, you've done so well and built, you know, built so much, but you've, uh, you've succumbed to the, you know, the drip Dilution. feed um, of, yeah, yeah, the constant drip feed of, of um of the you know the the epidemic that is venture capital and it's uh it's it's a horrible way to to manage the business you know raising to get to the next raise versus raising to you know build value with that money 
Yeah, when I think that, and that's that is really such a cautionary tale. I love that example you gave about yeah, your executives in your portfolio. Yeah, maybe fewer zeros on the exit valuation, but more zeros for them personally. And I, Big and time. I, the, and I think yeah. it, it's such a hard concept for many entrepreneurs to grasp. Is and you've certainly touched on it <laughs> explicitly here. Is that uh, yeah, investors aren't always in alignment with you as a what your goal is as a an entrepreneur. I think they're often often misaligned, um, and I think the it, it, and entrepreneurs are right to be skeptical too, because you know for, for me VC so much of it historically is this weird black box where it's like you know they, you're engaging with a, an investor you don't really know what they're doing. Uh, by the way, they're probably not really doing much work or analysis. It's just kind of you know shooting from the hip, and and then they come back to you and say yay or nay and and kind of move on. Uh, that's that's crazy. It's just this black box. It's very opaque and nebulous. You don't know what they're what they're kind of doing to get to their their decision. Um, you know, conversely, we we actually have a, a thing where when, whenever we close a partnership, you know, you're going through this this really crazy high overhead, really onerous diligence process for you know whatever thirty days, and uh, and you're you're giving so much information to the investor. It's really mm-hmm. taxing. We right. the first thing that we do is we present everything we learned back to the senior team to, to show them, you know, what we saw, good, bad, ugly, because it's just a great way to learn about your business from an outsider perspective. Right. And folks don't do that. It's, yeah, it's sorry, shocking free, to me that, that folks don't do that. Yeah, well, free consulting, but it's, it's also like, you know, wh- why would you not do that, right? We're all in this thing together. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's part of it. Uh, and so it's just, it's really just wild to me that, you know, things like that are not done transparent conversations are, are really not had because, you know, if, if you, if you need to puff out your chest and, and, and by the way, it's easy to be seduced by, you know, the, the big logos of, of companies that have crushed it. I totally get that. And if, and if that's your shtick and, and you're comfortable with it, that's fine and, and power to you. But if you don't really understand what it means to take money uh, and the unnatural things that you can be forced to do, in that model, you should be, you should be, you know, really kind of, uh, approach it cautiously. The, the one anecdote that I'll, I'll reference Andy that I mm-hmm. think you'll love the, um, my, my partner, Phil, and I worked with a company called higher view. Sure. Um, where, yeah, you know, higher view. Yeah. Yeah. So they, so we partnered with them back in 2012 at our old firm. Um, I, I remember the founder, Mark Newman, uh, picked Phil and I up in his, uh, beat up Toyota Corolla from, from the airport, and drove us to their their office in, in Utah. He had the um, one of those cars with like the manual roll down windows. And I remember my <laughs> my window was stuck, and so I couldn't even roll down my window. And his AC was broken, so it was like you know 100 degrees. It was. And by the way, that that was so endearing, and probably one of the best parts about the trip. Um, and so we we put 10 million dollars into the company. There were four million of ARR. Company did really well, and and you know everyone on the team really wanted to go for it. And so we raised money from two really high profile investors, uh, a bunch of it. And the company just really, you know, um, took their burn rate up. They, they did very well. The company sold last year to, to Carlisle for about 700 million bucks. But um, the, the founder, we were catching up with him the other day. One of the things he said to me was, you know, I, I think the I knew it was out of control when I was walking down the halls of my office and I saw someone I had just hired two weeks ago was training someone <laughs> on the sales team. And he was like, that's when I knew it was kind of out of control. So 
I think if you asked him, he would say, you know, I would do it a little bit differently if I could have done it again, because, you know, even with success in that model, um, it's still uncomfortable at times and you're going to be pushed to do things that are unnatural, um, you know, really versus just iterating your way there. Um, you know, we're, right. we're, we're all for big exits, but don't, don't commit to that on day one. Well, and you, you, again, you talk about it in the, the growth fables, you say that, you know, fortress businesses aim to grow as fast as they can, but no faster. And yeah, I, I just think that's a great perspective to have, right? Is absolutely. Yeah. I mean, cause I sort of think of the, the Deming quote about, you know, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it, that it does. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. I keep cutting you off the, um, yeah, the, the, that founder, one of his, his best quotes was, you know, most companies don't die of starvation. They die of indigestion. Right. Um, Too much capital. It's, I think it's, yeah, absolutely. The other, you know, the other concept we talk a lot about is, are you selling the house or bringing in a roommate? Because, you know, if you're selling the house, of course, you just care about, you know, likelihood of clothes and price. Um, but if you're bringing in a roommate, you're like, are they going to, you know, wash the dishes and who are their friends? And do I, you know, are they going to play loud music late at night? You're, you're growing with that person. And so, you know, price and, and terms absolutely matter, but there's so much more that goes into the equation, uh, that really, really matters in my view, way more than that. And so, um, it's just it's it's not focused on enough. Yeah. So, tell us about the the work you do then with the yeah you know, your portfolio companies with the sales teams helping them structure themselves for success. Absolutely. So, um, so one of the things that we've done over time is you know some of our peers and competitors will have these kind of in house alpha services benches. Um, so you'll have you know folks on the payroll. That um, and it's a big part of of the value they you know tout that they provide uh, working with this team in house. Um, I, I think those are great for some things, right? If you want somebody who's paid eighty k a year to do a model for you, financial model, that that's awesome. I think you know the folks that you really want to interface with that have been there, done that from an experienced you know operator perspective, they're probably not going to work at a at a venture or private equity firm um, or or just not have another job ever. And so we've actually built this kind of uh, this operating advisor bench um, and these folks are on demand and, and it's folks that we've worked with in the past that are just absolute killers in given areas that, again, would never <laughs> take another job or don't want one and probably would would never work at a, at a venture firm full time. But they love working with companies. And so one of the things we do from a sales perspective is is uh, two folks that we work with. Um, it's got Pete Daffern, who's a CEO that we've backed twice. He was president of NetSuite after that. He's been everything from, you know, first employee to, you know, 7,000th employee. Um, and he's, he's just an amazing strategic sales guy and strategic sales mind. Um, and he works with another one of our, our operating advisors, Howard Bell, who was, uh, who was the head of product at, at PayPal. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have done and built and we've kind of helped uh, help productize with them just this, this amazing workshop around ICP. So really defining understanding and, and really kind of honing your ideal customer profile. And so we do this every time with companies. Um, it's a really, as, as you can, you can appreciate Andy and I do, you talk about this too, uh, just understanding your ICP almost to the point where it's like uncomfortable how defined it is. Cause you mm-hmm. feel like there's not enough prospects out there. Um, that's one of the huge things that we do just, you know, strategically and just trying to, to figure right. out, you know, what your sales motion is targeted uh, at and, and towards. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, well, that speaks to the great fear of so many uh, entrepreneurs, which is, yeah, if we get too specific in our ICP, yeah, who are we going to sell to? <laughs> and totally. Uh, yeah, and, it, and this gets, yeah. well, it gets back to the theory of constraints, right? Which is, yeah, one startup I was at, you know, we identified at one time maybe we had 30 potential customers worldwide. Uh, and we we're sort of thinking, how are we going to build a business on that? But well, you and, do. And, yeah. You do. Well, and also, Andy, you can't build, um, you can't pursue growth at all costs with a with a tightly, tightly defined ICP, right? And so one of the one of the knock-ons, the really negatives of that model, from my perspective, is if you're pursuing that approach, you kind of have to go so broad and be in every conversation, many of which you shouldn't. That you know, it's it's just kind of hard to be specialized. If you know, conversely, you have a pragmatic investor and, and pragmatic team and, and a pragmatic set of goals you can really specialize and then build out from there. Uh, so I think that's huge. So the ICP stuff is, is great. Right. Um, you know, we work hard with teams to, you know, just do things like sales productivity and efficiency modeling. Um, what's interesting, I've never seen a financial model from a company that assumes any sales rep churn, <laughs> which is, is something that, that we, you know, it, by the way, it has a big impact, especially in, a, in an enterprise sales model. And so we, we just work with teams to really think through and model out what that all means, um, and work with them to, you know, think through what the, the right number of, you know, reps in a given cohort might be. Um, so we can kind of, uh, hire appropriately train, enable them, and then see, you know, see how they're doing, um, you know, versus hiring 10, 15 reps right out of the shoots. Let's hire two and, you know, just kind of see what they're doing, measure and, and, you know, optimize from there. Um, we actually think about our business as, as, uh, and our team as strategic sales folks as well. Uh, and so we were doing this this ICP workshop with you know Pete and Howard who are just incredible so many times with our companies that we said why like why don't we do this ourselves and so we actually did we turned the you know turned the script on ourselves and we did an ideal entrepreneur uh, profile workshop for for Peaks fan and so we think hard about who we're we're selling our quote unquote product to as well mm-hmm. because you know again the things that we you know provide and and uh, and, and kind of drive uh, and the things we talk about. They're, they're not right for everyone, right? So we shouldn't be in certain conversations. And, you know, I think just kind of aligning the, the organization, whether it's an investment group or a business, just around who, who we're selling to and why they care uh, is huge. So we, um, we did that ourselves. No, excellent. All right. Well, so if uh, someone's listening in the audience, they're looking to uh, fund uh, their, their entrepreneurial venture and uh, software venture and uh, they like your approach. How do they contact you? Sure, sure. Um, and again, just really, you know, appreciate the time here today. So, uh, Matt Melamuka, you can you can reach me at matt at peakspancapital.com. Um, you know, anyone uh, who's interested in the in the growth parables or any of the stuff that we talked about. You know, we also do these masterclass series, and, and Pete and, and others come come and kind of present to our teams, and they're on our website too, peakspancapital.com. We've got a, a section of it called Scaling HQ where there's just a lot of great content for, for entrepreneurs. And, you know, the reason we're all in this business is to help and, and work with entrepreneurs at the end of the day. So always happy to help. Yeah, and I encourage people to go to your website and read those uh, growth fables. I really, really enjoyed them. I think a lot of good lessons for operators you know, as well as aspiring entrepreneurs. Awesome. Well, I truly appreciate it, Andy. Um, well, you know, you guys me. have such a, such a great reputation and, and just you produce amazing content yourself. So really just humbled to be on the show. Oh, Matt, thank you very much. It's very kind of you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking again. Sounds great.
Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Matt Melimuka, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.